And now, a Blaze Media podcast. Man stands with America. This is Freedom's Disciple with Jonathan Dunn on the Blaze Radio Network. Hello, America. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This, of course, is the show where you come for the accent and Miss Tina and you stay for the principles. Before we get to today's guest, Miss Tina, welcome back from the happiest place on earth. Thank you, Jonathan. It was Did you magical. have a good time. Yes. It was magical. It was magical. Disneyland was beautiful. You and I have to do a segment on Disneyland one of these days so we can talk about all the wonderful different people that I encountered there in the Magic Kingdom. <laughs> oh, I've heard some of the stories. You've told me that if we ever get invaded, we're so screwed. We so are. we got to talk about that. <laughs> we are. But that's not today's show. We've got a very special guest for you today. So I don't know about you, America, but this is the start of December. We've had Thanksgiving. We're now heading approach to Christmas. I'm sick and tired of the political news. I'm sick and tired of the, the world overseas. So I wanted to do three special shows with Miss Tina for the month of December. And also, I hope you're going to enjoy them. We're going to focus on three special gifts. We're going to focus on hope. We're going to focus on joy. And we're going to focus on peace. And we've got three amazing guests. So please don't miss any of the shows in December. And today's guest is a Mr. Shiloh Harris. He's going to talk to us about hope. Shiloh, thank you so much for joining the show, brother. Hey, John, Tina, thank you so very much for having me on the show. I feel like this is a, a wonderful privilege, and I loved your intro, man. That's right. We are. We're focused on uh, a lot of good things because, uh, as a lot of people know, we're leaning in towards the holidays. And Man, I'm, I'm so excited to be with you guys today. And I feel good. we got a big holiday coming up with a lot of families. So I feel like there's going to be a lot of hope in the air that we get to share today. I, I hope so, because I think America is one of the, the few countries that actually celebrates the holidays in proper priority. You've obviously got Thanksgiving, which you're supposed to be thankful for. You've got Christmas, which is the birth and joy. And then you've got New Year, which is like a chance for a fresh start and renewal. So why don't you start by telling us your story? So um, you come from a, a family of people who have served this great nation, and, and including your father who served in Vietnam. Why don't you tell people what that was like? Because Vietnam, I always, as an outsider and someone who loves history, I always feel people who served in Vietnam get a raw deal. And I don't think their story is ever told properly. So, and I think you have an, a distinction that not, not only did you serve yourself, which we'll get to later on, but you can talk about what it was like to see your dad serve and what the impact on his life was like. Uh, John, that was a, a, a great uh, question and a, a great statement to make there, you know, because I think it's really relevant today too, because this is leaning towards the holiday and our family, you know, it's a good family conversation. You know, my dad, and I guess you could say, all the Vietnam veterans, you know, they uh, are a great majority of them. I shouldn't uh, group everybody together like that. You know, everybody has their own dynamics. But uh, the Vietnam veterans, you know, they paid a huge price for every generation to follow them. And, you know, a lot of the veterans that even served before them recognized the way that they were uh, treated when they got home. And so, you know, my father, he was he was one of those guys, too. And he was very upset 
uh, about the way he was treated. But, you know, he did his best to continue to be a patriot and still treat everybody with dignity and respect, uh, even if they didn't treat him that way. And I think that that's something that he instilled in me. And it helped me with my own uh, struggles, you know, after the war. Uh, I got injured in Iraq in 2007 by a roadside bomb, you know, which we'll get into here in a minute. But, you know, going back to my, my family, you know, my dad, my grandfather, I had uh, stepbrothers, brothers, uncles. I mean, you name it. We had, I had like a variety of people that served in different branches of the military. So I got to hear all of those stories every time we'd get together for the holidays or even when we'd just get together to go on a summer trip, you know, is that it just always seemed to find its way into the conversation because it was relevant. And of course, you know, with having that many people serving in the military, they all had common ground. I feel like it was an opportunity missed because I didn't join the military right after I graduated high school, like a lot of uh, young men and women do. But I joined after 9-11-2001, and at that point, I was 27 years old. The decisions that I made to join the military, I believe, came from that patriotic family influence. So one of the things I'd, lo I'd love you to talk about, if you can give me an answer, it might be a very hard question to answer, though, is just as an outsider living in America, I'm always amazed that when I meet family in the military, how it seems to be a generational service. You know, like you, you never really hear, I never get to meet too many people in the military who say, hey, what's your family background? You know, why did you join the military? Well, my father joined or my uncle joined or my great grandfather. And it always seems to be this lineage. You rarely, rarely hear stories of, well, I'm the first person to join and I just wanted to join and I wanted to serve my country. It's always a family thing. What what leads to that or why is it so many people, so many fam so few families give so much and so many families don't ever get to be part of the military? Well, you know, I haven't, I don't think I've had anybody ask me that. I mean, I've had the conversation, you know, sitting around with other veterans, you know, is that when you talk to somebody, and a lot of times when I was, you know, serving with guys right beside me, I'd be like, so why'd you join? You know, it was just a conversation that came up. And some of them, the great majority of them, had a family member that had served in the military or they, you know, somebody that they admired greatly. It might not have even been a family member. It might have been somebody that uh, they felt as an influencer in their life, somebody that they looked up to, you know. Uh, but I do believe there's a generational thing there. I believe that, you know, for me, and this is from my perspective, you know, uh, the military was probably one of the best things I was ever a part of up to that point. And, you know, now post-military, of course, you know, I'm a – I'm an adult, you know, and uh, I've, I've had some wonderful experiences. But the military, it changed my life, man, in so many ways. I felt like I, I grew so much in the first couple of years of just having that uniform on and, and seeing the camaraderie and sharing these stories with friends now from all over the world. Well, Shiloh, I find it very interesting that you wanted to join the military in spite of all those demons that your dad brought home. Because that was really difficult for your family. He brought home a lot of demons that you and your family had to deal with. You're absolutely right, Tina. And that, uh, that is, you, you're absolutely right. Honestly, today, I don't even know if I could answer to go into depth in that because there are, there's so many layers to that cake. But when I was talking about that a moment ago, how from my own perspective, that the military was something that I felt like it was probably one of the greatest things that I was a part of. Maybe I picked that up from my father, even though he 
got treated poorly, you know, maybe even uh, that was part of his PTSD. Uh, Tina, you know, through uh, your and your, my uh, conversations in the past, uh, I've had many conversations with a lot of different veterans because of what I do. Uh, I'm a motivational speaker, author, you know, I do all these various things. And it puts me in front of a lot of good people. And I've heard stories across the board. One Vietnam veteran told me, he said, I was special forces. They sent me to a camp in Vietnam. And he said, I never left the camp. I don't have PTSD from it. He said, but I have PTSD from the plane ride home. He said that when he got on the plane, uh, there was this guy that uh, saw him and could tell that he was a service member, even though they were putting out orders for people to change their uniform before they got onto public transportation. Uh, he said that he got on the plane and then there was this guy immediately was like, Oh, Hey man, did you serve in the military? And he sounded very sincere and warming. And my friend said, yeah, I just got back. I'm so excited to get to go home. And he said that the guy stood up on the plane and started yelling, Hey everybody, we got a baby killer on the plane today. Let's make sure and show him how we really feel about this. And he said that moment was the moment that he feels like was where he probably got his PTSD because he was excited. He thought for a moment he was going to be welcomed home. And that was his introduction back into the United States. The very first flight after getting back from Vietnam. And I was like, how? I don't even know what I would do. I don't even know how I would feel. I mean, it was so horrible. And just hearing that. I mean, of course, I, I I was very empathetic and concerned, but, you know, hearing him say that, and he said that he didn't have any other real incidents like that, but it almost made him ashamed of his service, which he said, Charlie, he said, I didn't do anything other than, you know, try to help people and, and, and for them to treat me like that, I think he, he said it was very unwanted and, of course, unnecessary. I'm sorry to go so deep on that, and but, you know, he, he talked about his wife, and, you know, and, of course, our message today is hope. And when I met him, we were on a marriage retreat uh, or a couple's retreat. And I was there as a guest speaker, you know, to talk about the challenges that I faced when I came home, uh, you know, after being blown up. Marriage is hard anyway. But when you let off a bomb right in the middle of your relationship, it complicates things even more. And that was something that I've always shared. And for him to say that and for me to hear that from him, it was it threw a different dynamic into my, my conversation. It gave me a lot to think about. Because, you know, I, I don't know that I necessarily have PTSD from my service other than me being blown up and maybe, you know, the occasional almost getting shot moments, you know, but for the most part, I feel great about my service. I know that I did good things, you know, like deliver, delivering uh, uh, school supplies. We helped rebuild schools. We deliver escorted medical teams and medical supplies into areas that people had never seen a doctor before in their entire life. And so, you know, I, I was there and I joined the military, I believe, for the right reason. And of course, you know, we did a lot of humanitarian stuff, but not everybody gets to hear those stories. And that was something that I was sharing. And that was something his wife said is he always bragged about all the good things that he had done while he was in Vietnam. And she was always very consoling when he had those moments that uh, he struggled with that one moment on that plane. But for the most part, he, he lived a successful life. And yeah, Tina, that was, a, that was a great question. I'd really have to think about that, you know, because there's a lot of layers to why I would join if my father was disgruntled about that. And maybe even some of the other service members that I served with. That's great. I want me to think about it. great. It threw me off my game. 
I want you to go deep though too, Shiloh. I don't want shallow questions here. So please feel free to go as deep as you want because that will make it more interesting and more real. And people need to understand everything that our veterans go through. You know, I agree. And and I, I like what John said a moment ago too, you know, before we got started, I was like, how do you want this to go? And he said, let's have a conversation. And I think that's important. You know, there, there's a, something that we do almost every Sunday morning here at my house. Uh, and I don't know if you know or not, uh, Tina, but I, I think I told you that I was going to school. I decided to go back to school. I've been going to a university of incarnate word and I'm going for religious studies. And it's been a kind of a personal growth journey, but maybe at some point I might want to have a ministry. But Sunday mornings, I want to say, I don't want to say every Sunday, you know, because people get sideways here and there. But I let the kids use our house, kind of the man cave thing going on out in the shop. And but if they come and use my property Sunday morning, they have to have breakfast for us. You know, they get to they get to come in. We have breakfast. I'll cook breakfast for everybody. Uh, you know, and we we sit around and, and we talk, just talk, just like this about different things, tough subject, things that our our country's faced with, things that are that uh, you know their age groups are are having struggles with for whatever reason. And uh, I know COVID's been a topic. You know, some of it has been a lot of people are worried about war. They're worried about another world war. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that our country and our society is faced with right now. But something that I remember, I can't remember exactly the the uh, the place, but uh, it seems like it was in Corinthians where it says we were hard pressed on every side, but not crushed resonated with me. And that's something that I always try to share with the kids is, you know, we need to lean on our blessing, whatever they are, and have these good conversations. And yes, talk about those tough things because it's good to get it out. Sometimes our imagination gets the best of us and, and we make things up in our head that we don't know how to that we don't know how to have answers for or try to answer them for ourselves. So it's good that we have tough conversations. And we need to be having these tough conversations with our children. Amen. I'm going to bring you back to one of your answers just about two questions ago. You said something and you glossed over it. And this is one of the reasons I have so much respect for the military, because we live in this world, as you just spoke about there, about how we can't have conversations. You know, it's so hard to have these tough conversations because everyone wants to get offended and everyone wants to, you know, no one wants to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. But you said something and you just said it like, you know, I want two pancakes and a bit of bacon. You said, I didn't really have PTSD from the military, apart from being blown up and shot at a few times. And you just said it as if it was just like, yeah, just two pancakes and maple syrup, a bit of bacon and eggs over easy. How do you get to that point of view where you can just say like, because like you take to the average person and I include myself in this, you know, what our problems are. They pale in comparison to, I don't think I've ever been blown up. And I don't think I've ever been shot at because if you shoot at me, I'm a big boy and you miss, you got your, your problem is not me. Your problem is you, you miss me. I'm a big target, but the military, you guys see stuff that none of us can comprehend and you overcome stuff that none of us can, can comprehend. How do we get to a point where we can learn from you and actually be willing to be vulnerable or courageous or a combination of all of these but to have those conversations realizing that we're really secure in our bubble and it's okay to go out and have conversations and have tough conversations because we won't face anything compared to what you just said wow john i'm going to take that as a compliment thank you so very much you know for bringing that up and i guess you're right you know that i did kind of downplay like oh i just got blown up i just got shot at you know it, it is what it is 
But I think that that came with the job, you know, knowing that those were possibilities. And it's like you prepare yourself mentally before you even going out. What's so shocking nowadays is, you know, when you hear about something happening in our society, you know, these aren't things that you plan on when you go to the grocery store. These aren't things that you plan on when you go to the movie theater or, or send your kids to school. And right now I'm just, I'm horrified by some of the, the stuff that, that's happening in our country and even around the world in that case. It's not just our country that's experiencing these, these tragedies. Uh, but, you know, how how to uh, teach or educate people on on these things, you know, I, uh, courage. I will admit there are many times in the past that I've been scared and scared, you know, because I remember one time there were literally bullets skipping on the concrete around my feet. And I was thinking, I hope I don't catch one of those bullets, but I still knew that I had a job to do and I had to put myself, I had to just put it aside, but I was scared. I was scared that one of those bullets were going to hit me, but at the same time, I had to push that down and push it aside because again, I I knew that I had to lean on the job. Now, something that helped me do that, as I said a moment ago, is I prepared myself mentally to go to combat thinking full well I could potentially be shot or shot at. I knew full well that I could be potentially blown up or have a bomb blow up close to me. And even now in the civilian world, I find myself running scenarios through my head as to what if this happened, how would I protect my family? What if this happened? This is what I would do to help protect my family. And I, and something that uh, I learned from a young age, and, and I will tell you this, uh, I wrote a book called Still Will. And the writer and I didn't always agree on it. Although I, I wrote a, a great majority of the book, I had a ghostwriter that helped me polish it out and, and make it, uh, you know, um, I guess you could say appropriate for multiple audiences. But uh, I, that one of the statements I told her is like, I got, I've been shot at, I've been thrown out of a moving car, uh, I did this, I did that, and then I joined the military. And she was like, we probably shouldn't open with that. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, well, uh, that was my life. I grew up in a very wild west kind of scenario, maybe because of my dad, you know, because he, he had some pretty tough guys around him. When I, I, my, most of my friends growing up were bikers. My dad, he taught a martial arts class. Something that I learned in that martial arts class is everything is a weapon business cards, whatever it is. And, and so when I'm running these scenarios, like at a grocery store, a can of soup, how would you want to, you would not want to be hit in the face with a can of soup. But if somebody's shooting at me, I'm going to use whatever I can to keep them from hitting me with one of those bullets. I'll throw soup, I'll throw flour, I'll throw bread, whatever it takes. And so these are the kind of scenarios that I'm talking about, the kind of deterrence that I think about. Maybe that's because it's been a part of my life, the great majority of my life. So then 9-11 happens, and that's a big turning point in your life, and you decided to to sign up. Can you give the, the reasons why, how that affected you, and why you all of a sudden felt that call to service at that point in time? Another great question. And uh, the way I, I remember it, 
Because I remember where I was on 9-11. It's like I said, I was 27. Uh, I just turned 27, in fact. And I uh, was doing a land surveying job. I was out on a ranch. You know, they was getting ready to sell. We're doing surveying. We had the big GPS equipment and all that stuff and four-wheelers. And it was a great job. I loved that job. I loved being a surveyor. I remember I couldn't get the GPS to work. And it was my first day running the crew. But I couldn't get the satellites to, to dial in. Nothing was working. None of our technology was working. And this was before we had the smartphones that we have today. You know, I think I had a, a flip phone at the time. You know, uh, just had T9 texting. And anyway, I humbly have to load all the equipment back up. And I take the crew back to town. We had to drive like an hour back to town. I mean, I was really upset. I was thinking I'd done something wrong. But I remember walking into my boss's office. I saw something on the TV that it looked like the Twin Towers on fire. I thought maybe he was watching a TV show or maybe there was a, I don't know, some fire or something going on somewhere. And I walked in and I was like, Don, I, was, I got some bad news. And he said, Shallow, he said, y'all come on in. You need to come sit down. And I asked him what was happening. And he said, Shallow, we're under attack. And it just washed over me. And I was like, what? I mean, it, it's, to think that our nation was under attack. This is stuff that you watch on TV happening someplace else in the world. And it just shocked me. And I started thinking about my family. And I started thinking about my children, you know, my mom, my dad, everybody. And I was like, what am I going to do? I felt a bit helpless. And I didn't like that feeling. So I decided the best course of action for me was to try to join the military, put boots on my feet and a rifle in my hand and do my part to serve my country. Because... We're at war. Somebody attacked us. We didn't know who. And this was all like, all this happened like within a couple of weeks. And I mean, and once we started like getting details and stuff, I still, still had that feeling. I need to do something. And I was already talking to a recruiter. I was already talking to my dad going, Hey man, what should I do? And all of these things. And, and I just, I remember it was just so shocking. And, and I, it, there wasn't another option for me. So what was the conversation like when you first decided to talk to a recruiter with your dad? Was there, when you said, right, I need to go serve the military and kind of, if I may use the saying, join the family business, the, you know, the family legacy. Was this kind of like, congratulations, I'm so proud of you, don't do this? Or was it kind of, you should have done this eight years ago? What was the, what was the reaction, especially from your father? Surprisingly, he was shocked in a way and i think that he was a bit fearful as well because he knew just like the rest of us that i was going to end up going somewhere although at that particular moment we didn't know where he knew that i was most likely going to end up in combat and just like any parent you know i'd be fearful for any of my children you know if they were to join the military at a time of war uh but you know he started talking to me about a lot of logical things you know like uh, and it was kind of for me, I guess you could say it was shocking for the simple fact that he was always gung ho, you know, and taught all these survival things and, and taught me martial arts and taught me this and taught me that. And then when I, I started talking to him about it, he was like, well, I think that you should look at this as a career because you already have a family, you have children, you know, you're married and, and maybe you should join the air force or get into like a logistics position or something like that. And I was thinking in my head, I already had it in my head. I was like, I want to go infantry or, combat arms engineer you know something like this and then he started talking to me about these things and it was 
I was like, wait a minute. I was like, who are you? <laughs> and then all of a sudden it was like, I could see him thinking, well, I'm your dad. I'm your dad. Today I'm not your, you know, badass partner. I'm your dad, you know? <laughs> so uh, it was good. But uh, yeah, I, I did end up joining a combat MOS, which I ended up joining the United States Cavalry, which is uh, very similar to the infantry style. Uh, you know, we, we have to learn a lot of weapons. We go out in front of uh, everybody do train analysis. We uh, look at the enemy positions. You know, we send intel back. And then, of course, if we have to, uh, we engage in the enemy. Uh, or if the enemy engages as well, we, you know, we, we handle ourselves. And it was a great job. A very rewarding. I loved it. So can you tell us a bit about what life was like as a military? Because, like, we always have these, you know, civilians always have this kind of vision of what serving is actually like before we get to, you know, 2007. So when you signed up first, what was training like? What was sort of, what was the, the you know, the good, bad bits and the bad bits? And then your first deployment, you know, can if you can talk about that, you know, kind of what it's really, really like. Oh, man. Well, I won't go too much into the training uh, for the simple fact that, you know, I mean, honestly, I loved it. <laughs> my backyard my backyard looked like an obstacle course growing up all my friends would come to my house so that way we could climb ropes and climb trees and engage in weapons training i mean it was crazy i always had swords and nunchucks and all the stuff that i grew up with this is what i grew up with i mean my house was an obstacle course i get into basic training and i remember one of the obstacle courses that we were doing I was thinking, man, this reminds me of my childhood, and I was killing it. And then I'm going back, and I'm helping people, and one of the drill sergeants come up, and, of course, you know, they're, they're going, hey, you need to keep going. This is a timed event. Do this, do that. And uh, anyway, at one point, I was helping these these people up uh, on one of those, uh, like, crawl ladder things, and I was I got up to the top ahead of everybody, and I started pulling people up, helping them over. And the drill sergeant looked at me, and he goes, if you don't move your ass, I'm going to have you UA. You're enjoying this way too much. And, and, and I was like, well, I grew up like this drill sergeant. He was like, move, Harris, move. But uh, I loved basic. It was great for me. Uh, I got to Germany. Germany was amazing. I grew up on those stories of Germany for my dad. Uh, he grew up there as a child with my grandfather. My grandfather served in the army. He was stationed over there. Uh, so I got to experience, I guess you could say, another part of the family legacy. That was I love Germany. My first deployment was with the Big Red One, our 1st Infantry Division, out of Schweinfurt, Germany. We were all mechanized, tanks and Bradleys, heavy equipment. And uh, that deployment was an eye-opener for me. I remember the first time seeing Iraq. We, we flew into Kuwait first, and it was extremely hot. Hotter than I'd ever been, and I'm in Texas, you know, so that was it was it was hot. <laughs> well, we stayed there, acclimated, and trained a little bit before going into Iraq. As we went into Iraq, I remember crossing the berm, and it was literally like we traveled back in time. I could not imagine people living in that condition in this day and age. It was unbelievable to see that and that moment i knew why i was there i was there to help these people and that was the way i seen it i was like I, it is my it is my duty right now it is my job to help these people and i would i mean that was that was like my core message and that was my my core belief as i did my duty over there 
So define what you mean by that you couldn't believe people were living this way in this point in time. Uh, there were just, I mean, they got water out of irrigation ditches. You know, some of them had water pumps that water ran up to their house. But for the most part, they'd go down there with a bucket still and pull water out of the, the irrigation ditch. You know, they had open sewers, which was just like a little trail etched into the dirt where the sewer would run. And it was just no electricity in some places, no windows, no doors, no conditioned air, nothing like that. And, you know, working the fields, there there was like one tractor for the whole community. And I mean, I get it. I understand small towns. And believe me, I grew up in a small town and I, I've seen poverty. U.S. poverty is quite different from third world country poverty, though. People don't even realize how blessed we are in this country a lot of times until they actually see that. Some of the children, I've seen children over there, the schools was no bigger than my, my office. The entire school was as big as my office here in my house. And it would have no doors, no windows, no material. The teacher is somebody that come in and basically, you know, would would talk to the kids and give them as much education as they were allowed to give. They might have one book or he might be able to show them pictures and, and that sort of thing. But there wasn't paper and pens. It was just, it's like I said, it was just unreal. It was something that I couldn't even fathom. And I and when I was there, that's what I, some of the things that I pride on when I give my presentations is the humanitarian side. Yes. I got shot at. Yes. And, you know, there were people trying to blow us up. There were a lot of bad things that we experienced. But I was there to do a good job to help people. And I, I still think about that. Because every time I look at my children, I think about some of the, the children that I experienced over there. And I just wanted to bring them all home. You know, I was just like, you're coming home with me. You know, <laughs> it was just it was something that changed my life and changed my perspective. I think that is a huge misunderstanding with a lot of people outside of the military is they imagine you going in there, Shiloh, and you're going in there to kill and to hurt. But that's not why most of you are joining. Most of you are joining because you want to protect your loved ones at home and make sure that we can go to bed without even thinking about what you're doing over there. We don't have to worry about it. And also, you want to help those people who, like you said, we can't even comprehend over the United States how good we have it here. You're going there to help protect your loved ones at home. Absolutely. That's 100% why I joined. You know, and it's like I said, joining after 9-11 just seemed like my only option at that point. That I didn't know another way to serve. Uh, you know, of course, now I do. And that's one of the reasons that I became a motivational speaker. You know, I work with a lot of different nonprofit organizations. And again, I'm still all about the humanitarian thing. I have children. I have family. I have people that I care about, just like you, Tina. You know, I, I think I look at your family and I think about all the wonderful blessings that you guys bring. And now meeting John, I know that he's doing good things to uh, help make the world a better place. And that's what it's all about. You know, one of the one another, another thing that we did in Iraq. Uh, and I guess probably in Afghanistan as well. I didn't get the Afghanistan experience. Both of my tours, both of my services were in Iraq. Uh, but, you know, there were a lot of training as well. We trained police officers. We play, trained soldiers so that way they could handle their own security. It wasn't just us over there tearing things up. We were actually there helping establish local governments, teaching them a better way how to 
uh, I guess you could say, have clean water and how to uh, do better agriculture. I mean, you name it. There were all these dynamics that we were there to help for. And a lot of people don't see that. You know, they see soldiers, and, and you're right, Tina, there's a bit of a stereotype that comes with our service members, uh, just like our the Navy. You know, they when they pull a ship into port in a disaster area, they're not there to pull security. They're there as like a, a mobile hospital. They're like, hey, we are here to help. We have medical professionals standing by to help you people. And that's something that I just, I'm, I'm so proud that our nation does for uh, other people is we go out there and we help as much as we can. So yeah, I know that y'all really hadn't asked me, so I'll just jump into it. And I know that we've talked about a lot of good things here, but, uh, you know, I did get blown up, and that was the part that is Sorry, Before you go there, can I just ask one question before we get to that part? Yeah, sure. So you you spoke about humanitarian aid that you did. What Can you give us sort of a couple of small examples or a big example of, because everyone has this, you know, I think the, the problem, and I don't mean this is a problem, but there's a lot of misconceptions to the average American about what the military does. What type of humanitarian aid, can you give some examples of what you were involved in personally that you did? Because I think that is something that we don't ever highlight. It's, you know, as Tina correctly said, we have this vision of the military going in, going how with the, with the guns, going to go bang, 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 and an enemy kill, and enemy kills, and you're going in and taking this town back and take, taking that town. They don't hear about the the the, the parts of working with this, this community, working in the, you, you spoke about the training side of things, but if you, you said it, the humanitarian aid a couple of times, can you give us sort of some examples of what you saw? I like that. I really like that. So there was one moment that I felt was very touching for me, you know, as a Christian is, uh, you know, they, they don't have a lot of religious freedom over there. You know, I mean, they obviously practice in private, you know, uh, and even a lot of the things that happen from, you know, civilian to civilian over there you know, religious conflict. But I remember there's a, I was, we were walking through this one village. It was pretty friendly and they, they were always very warm and welcome to us. Uh, you know, the kids would always come out and walk alongside us, which we didn't want in case we ever did come into contact, you know, with bad people or they wanted to take a pop shot or two at us. We didn't want anybody getting hurt, but the kids were always coming out there and we'd give them candy and stuff, you know, and try to be warm to them. But uh, there's this one young woman come up to me one day and she kind of whispered to me. She was like, I wanted to come tell you thank you. And she pulled out her cross, which was on her necklace. She had a little chain and a, and a cross on her necklace. She said, thank you so much for trying to help us have more freedom, to be free to believe what we want to believe. And that statement really hit me too. You know, I was just like, oh, wow. You know, I, I never really even looked at it from that perspective. I was looking at it more like, you know, clean water, schools, clothes, you know, we're delivering food, medical, you know, all these things. But to have religious freedom, she felt like that was probably the greatest wish that she could have. And I, and I, I, that story just really, it sticks with me. And it's something that I, I don't always share, but, you know, in some audiences, especially religious audiences that I, I, I share my story with, uh, I think it's a good story to have. Uh, because there are a lot of people out there that feel oppressed. And it's, and we don't want that ever. We shouldn't have that. Uh, there was one other story that I want to share with you before we move on, but there's this one young man that he used to worry me because he would, he'd like stay right beside me 
And he kept telling me, I love you, I love you, I love you. And he just loved America. He was so fascinated with American culture. And uh, one day I gave him a shaving kit because he was, you know, had his little stubbies. You know, he was the, that that preteen or that that young teen where he had his little facial hair coming on. And, and uh, anyway, I gave him one of our USO shaving kits. And he thought that was like the greatest gift. I mean, it was, he was, oh, my gosh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, it kind of worried me because I gave him the gift, and I didn't see him on a couple of the patrols. I didn't see him for almost a month. And I was thinking, oh, my gosh, my gift got him in trouble. You know, somebody, somebody saw it. And I was, I was scared for him. I was scared that I'd done something wrong. Well, one day, here he comes. About a month later, he comes walking up to our, you know, our patrol, and he's like, Shiloh, Shiloh, you know, he's a, he come running up and uh, he looked clean. He had, you know, good clean clothes on. He looked like a professional almost, you know, I mean, it, it was day and night from what I'd seen before that shaving kit. It, it inspired him so much that he went and got a job on one of the installations as a translator and started working to help soldiers with building the schools. And I was just, I don't know. I don't know. That was just something that really touched me. And it gave me a lot of hope about the future for young men and women like that. If the, you know, if we can keep teaching people, you know, that we're, that we're here to help. And, and uh, it just takes a small amount of kindness to pay it forward and create something much bigger than ourselves. I love that. And because so many part of our society today is we're looking for this big, grandiose change. You know, what can we do to change the world? And it's a small little shaving kit that changed that guy's life. So awesome. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. So now we're getting to the point where we get to your story about you know just as you nonchalantly say i got blown up you you're serving in iraq in 2007 can you sort of give us a description of that day what you were thinking what the mission was obviously don't share anything classified but or anything that you can't share just what you're what you're thinking was what you had to do and what your experience was um you know just you know just another day in the job of shiloh harris getting blown up that's about the size of it, man. I mean, just another day, you know. <laughs> the, fortunately, I didn't get stabbed or shot at, but I did get blown up that day. So, you know, and I, I admit that earlier, you know, as a, I guess, a, a way for the, the listeners, uh, you know, the audience, because I, I know they don't, they don't know me from Adam at this point, at the point, you know, where we were earlier. And uh, I was like, well, I said maybe we should give them some perspective. So. Uh, uh, you're right. I said, but I'm glad that you did follow up on that that last part of that last segment, as uh, that was really good stuff, man. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's hard for me to even imagine that it's been that long ago. You know, we just what, what did we just have? We just celebrated, I guess you could say, if you want to call it a celebration of remembering 9/11. You know what I mean? I mean, 20 years, 20 years ago that happened. That moment changed my life. It changed. A lot of lives. I knew that I was going to end up in Iraq. Something that a soldier does is plan to come back in a box. Soldiers, Marines, Airmen, all these, they don't really plan on coming back like I did 
injured to the, you know, significantly like this, that's not really part of the strategy. It's either, it's, it, I guess when you think of it in terms of, you know, your service in uniform, it's black or white. A lot of people forget about that gray area of, you know, being injured, shot, uh, injured significantly, amputations, burns. But this is a real part of war. War is ugly. You know, although, you know, I, I believe 100% that we were doing the right thing, war is still ugly. You know, people get hurt. And, and that's, the, that's the unfortunate part of this thing, uh, of this conversation. On February 19th, 2007, I was injured by a roadside bomb that was estimated to be about 700 pounds of explosives buried in the road. It shredded my Humvee. Three of the four Humvee doors were blown off, and the entire top of the truck was blown off. I lost three friends that day. And honestly, I have to say that it was divine intervention and a miracle that anybody survived. Me and my driver both survived. And it's hard to imagine how long ago that was at the same time. For me, it still feels like it wasn't that long ago because I live it every day. I see see it every day in the mirror that I don't think of my service as any less. I don't think of uh, the military any less. I don't think of our mission any less. And on that, and on that particular day, we were out visiting with people, uh, trying to figure out how we could make their life better. We were asking them, what could we do to make your life better? And we were also trying to find out how they felt about uh, Saddam Hussein being hung because he was hanged around that time. And we wanted to find out how people felt about it. And, and fortunately, you know, a lot of people, we were expecting a lot of hostilities. Uh, you know, so we we're kind of expecting a little uprising because where we were, south of Baghdad, a lot of people refer to it as the Sunni Triangle, which uh, were a lot of Saddam loyalists. Ironically, though, as we're out there visiting with people, they're like, uh, it's been a long time. It's okay. It's no big deal. You know, they weren't too worried about you know, losing Saddam because he hadn't been in power in years, you know? And so they were like, yeah, it is what it is. Let's move on to better days. And then all of a sudden we got a call to investigate a possible IED in our area. And just to emphasize, you know, what an IED is, IED, improvised explosive device, which means it can be anything. We didn't even know what we were looking for, except for, does it look like it might explode? We probably all want to be careful around it. And the un very unfortunate part about this conversation, too, is that as we adapted and learned how to protect ourselves from these IEDs or learned what to watch for, they adapted on better ways to hide them and better ways to, better ways to trigger them. So it was like this vicious cycle of learning and, and them being more obscure and, and, uh, and being tougher to find. Well, after the blast, I don't remember a lot, but uh, I do remember waking up uh, for however long it was. I remember waking up and I could feel the truck, you know, was hot. I was still trying to make things out. I knew that I had taken a hit. I didn't know how bad injured I was right away. Uh, I remember trying to call up a radio report because I was the uh, truck commander. The first thing you do is you start calling up a radio report, let people know what's going on around you. And uh, I remember looking over at the hand mic because I, I, could, I wasn't hearing anything. And the cable was burnt completely off of the hand mark. But I really couldn't make it out uh, visually at first. 
because it was like I was looking through straws. It was like my head had this really narrow field of view, and it was fuzzy. So I knew that I'd taken a hit, and I probably had a concussion. Uh, I'm, again, I felt the heat. I threw the hand mic down. I knew I needed to get out of the truck. My door, the only door left on the truck, it was buried in all this dirt and this asphalt. And, and this is where I say that, you know, this had to be another divine moment because I don't think that the condition that I was in, I should have been able to kick myself out of the Humvee. But I did. I kicked it out. I'm standing there and I'm taking all this stuff in. And, and uh, honestly, I still don't even really remember what I see other than my soldiers. I remember seeing soldiers around us and it was almost like everybody was just kind of running chaotically uh, like busy bees is the way I, I, I imagine it in my head. And everybody was just running and I could see arms moving and this and that. And I seen my driver over there and in, in the, kind of in the middle of three or four of them. And they were trying to get him. He was fussing and he was in shock. He was panicky and uh, fighting people, you know, kind of like fight or flight. Well, he's fighting. You know, and I'm, I started barking orders as an NCO. I'm like, hey, start pulling security. Who's calling up the nine line? Da, 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 da. I'm barking this stuff. Well, then I look over at one of my buddies because there were two vehicles that had already passed the site. I was the third truck in the convoy. And I remember looking at those two, th those two lead vehicles. And one of my friends over there was waving at me to come to him. Uh, I wasn't hearing anything. I could see his lips moving, but it was, it was like, a, and even when I was talking, it felt like everything was really muffled. And all of a sudden my attention got redirected to my left flank. I remember looking down, flames licked me in the face. Well, I turned away, took my body armor off, and I get a fire put out. My body armor was on fire, and the material was melting and running down my leg and burning me right then. So as I get that fire put out, I realized that another divine moment here probably happening, it wasn't just my body armor that was on fire. It was my ammo pouches. I had 200-plus bullets right there on my hip that was about to start cooking off. And so got that taken care of, boom, turned back around to see what my buddy wanted. And he ran out there and grabbed me to get me away from my Humvee. When our bodies made contact, I heard it for the first time. It was a pop and a zine, pop and a zine. There were these bullets flying all around me. And I didn't know it at the time because I was, you know, deafened a little bit from the blast. But when our bodies contact, you know, they popped and... Okay, well, now I know he ran out there into a hail of bullets to get me away from that Humvee because all the bullets inside my Humvee was cooking off. He gets me over there, he lays me on the ground, and they get me prepared for the medevac. Uh, fortunately, everything happened the way it was supposed to. I mean, we had the right people in the right places. And I just I think about these young men that I served with, and then I know they're not exactly young men anymore, but at that moment, you know, I was 27 years old, and a lot of the people that I served with, even my senior, uh, you know, leadership, I was older than them or the same age as them. <laughs> so, you know, it was like we had a lot of uh, mutual respect in a lot of ways. But I remember the look on so many of their faces, and I didn't know how I looked. I, 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 I was just laying there waiting for the medevac. I heard the helicopter coming in, and then all of a sudden, I got a glimpse of what I looked like and the reflection on my, on my buddy's glasses. And I could see that my hair was gone, my nose was gone, my ears were gone. I had blood running out of everything. My face was just charred black. And I started panicking because I was thinking, there's no way that's me. Well, I started trying to calm myself down. 
And I remember looking at this left hand, and I know that the audience can't see it, but I've got three fingers. Well, I should say two fingers and one thumb. And I got the two middle fingers and my thumb, and the, the other fingers are amputated. Well, I remember doing a self-assessment, you know, trying to calm myself down. And I remember looking at that hand, and I was thinking, I better get a day off for this. You don't get a lot of days off in combat. And uh, I really was thinking that. And at first, it was kind of selfish, you know, but then I was like, I was like, no. They're going to give me some time off, you know, and, and this, that was my coping mechanism is I'm trying to make myself laugh. And then I started turning to my driver and I'm asking him, I'm like, Hey man, do you know where the other guys are? And, uh, and he's like, no, no, I don't. He's, he's still panicking. And I'm, I'm trying, I was like, dude, do you think we're going to get a day off for this? You know, I'm only trying to get, take control of the situation. And, uh, I remember we get on the helicopter and everybody's got this intensity in their voice. They're all looking at us with these wide eyes and, you know, that you can just see that their hairs are on end and everybody's like, you're going to be okay. Screaming. And it made me screaming over the helicopter or whatever. And in my mind at this point, I'm still thinking, yeah, I know, man, I feel good right here. I know that I'm okay. And I know that God has me. Well, I was around the helicopter. The driver starts kind of panicking again, you know, we're taking off and he's laying face down and I'm face up because he's got burns on his back. And, uh, anyway, he looks at me and he's like, man, I want to go home. I just want to go home. Can they just take me home? And he's, he's panicking and rambling. And I was like, hey, bro. I said, Adam. I start calling him by his first name. And I said, hey, man. I said, can you do me a favor? And he kind of zeroes in. I was like, I can see his eyes go from wild to, okay, I got to focus on what he's saying. And he goes, anything, Sergeant? What is it? I said, bro, could you please quit bleeding on me, man? I said, you're dripping through. like that. And he looked at me and he goes, worst day of my damn life and a damn redneck's gonna make me laugh da, 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 da. and well then we started having a good dialogue and i'm like i'm like okay where's our buddies where's our friends we get to the green zone he goes one direction and i go the other and that's really the last thing i remember other than the doctor i was asking everybody where's my friend where's my soldiers and nobody knew or nobody would tell me but there's this one doctor right above me and he was making that he finally made eye contact. Nobody was making eye contact too. That was another thing kind of creepy for me. And I know I understand it, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a very personable person and the doctor looks me right in the eyes and he said, you'll find out where your soldiers are in a couple of months. But I had no idea what that meant. I was like a couple of months and bro, that was lights out. They medically induced me in a coma that I spent about 48 days in. And that's where the real journey began. Shiloh, were you in pain during this time or was your adrenaline such that you weren't really feeling a whole lot? They call it a flash burn the way those, so there was actually two explosions. Uh, I don't know if actually, I don't know if you and I ever talked about that. I can't remember if we did. I think we did a little bit. uh, Yeah. uh, So there were two explosions first, the IED. Well, while I was unconscious in the truck, they uh, left me in the truck to take care of the driver because it was the right thing to do because they thought I was dead. Well, while I was there in the truck, the AT4 cooked off and caused a, a secondary explosion and a, and a fireball, like a fire tornado inside the truck that uh, burned me even more. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. They did the right thing. You know, I, I got out uh, and thank goodness, you know, here we are. But uh, uh, say, uh, I'm sorry, say your question one more time. Could you feel anything or was it such that oh. the, the burns were so severe that it burned off your nerves? 
That's right. Okay. So yeah, going back to that, the feeling at first, I didn't really have a lot of pain. It was just uncomfortable. And then when they laid me on the ground, I think that's when it started sinking in that I'm in pain. And I don't know if they gave me morphine or not, uh, you know, to, to help fight the pain. But at first I just, I was like, eh, it is what it is, you know? And when I started doing that self-assessment, I remember this, my right arm, my uniform was melted into my skin. And I remember thinking to myself, that should hurt, but it wasn't hurting yet. And so I was just rolling with it. I was just doing what I could. But then when I did start having that uncomfortable feeling, that's when my movement, I, could, I remember my movement started getting limited. Uh, but yeah, there was no pain. Like when I started that recovery, though, woo, woo, woo. that was incredible, incredible amount of pain. And I was still heavily medicated. Um, good question. What I think is interesting that Jonathan doesn't know that you and I talked about is Jonathan, he remembers, Shiloh remembers being in his coma. And he will tell you it was the scariest, most nightmarish experience that he has ever had. Is that right, Shiloh? Absolutely. But um, the one thing I want to say to people is, is if you ever get the opportunity to have a sense of humor conversation with a military person, do it. Because I have a very dark, twisted sense of humor. Um, I have to say, and I hope you don't mind me saying this because it's so inappropriate to laugh at. But when you were talking about your hand and missing three fingers and your reaction was, I wonder, am I going to get a day off from this? I'm like, that is so funny. Like, it's so sad. I don't ever want anyone to go through it. But that type of sense of humor, you, mili- you I have a dark, twisted sense of humor, but military just take it like to a level of beyond this. And, and then when you're telling the story of, you know, what you're, when you're in the medivac you know you're bleeding out on me bro it's like <laughs> you know just to have that sense of humor <laughs> i wish the world had some more of it um because we 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 need to laugh at ourselves and at our lives because you know if you i believe you know if you don't laugh you're going to cry a lot more and i think laughing is is is, is probably the best medicine but I, I was intrigued to, to, to hear, you know, I, I watched the video of Gary Sinise, uh, you know, narrating on your life. What was it like being in that coma? Can you sort of give a feeling of what it was like and why it was the scariest time for you? Uh, yeah, you know, honestly, a lot of people, I, you know, when I was going through counseling, you know, I probably, I probably had more counseling than most people in America. <laughs> I've been through a lot of counseling. You know, whether it's been, you know, things that I felt like I needed or if people wanted me to go through a program, you know, that they were offering and asked me to do testimonial behind it, uh, you know, which I didn't mind. You know, I'm like, yeah, let me see what I can get out of it. You know, because I know that there's, you know, there, there's always room for improvement in all of our lives. And of course, you know, with me, I see that, you know, uh, especially uh, with mental, mental and uh, emotional, with everything that I've been through, I get it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm like, yeah, let me do it. But, uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. The laughing and crying is extremely healthy and we have to laugh at ourselves. One thing that I don't laugh about really is the coma because it was just as Tina mentioned, it was dark and scary and it was probably as close to hell as you can imagine. I'd never want to be there ever again. I had nightmares. I was scared to sleep. Because of that coma, I was scared that I would go to sleep and not wake up and I'd be trapped there. That's how bad it was. It was like everything was sharp. It was painful. 
it felt like my head hurt so bad that it was going to explode. And that, that is no joke. It felt like, uh, like the stuff, like, uh, have you ever chewed on like a, a, a candy wrapper and it's got like the little metal in it maybe. And, and you get that sensation, like electrical sensation. That's what it felt like, except it felt like probably 220 in my mouth. And it just made my head feel like it was going to explode. I, I dreamed about that many times after coming out of the coma. And there were a couple of times that I went into, I'd go into for surgery and they would be trying to, to put me down, put me to sleep, put me down. <laughs> Probably shouldn't say that, but <laughs> when they were trying to, you know, put me under to sleep and prepare me for the surgery, <laughs> uh, I remember I panicked a couple of times because I was scared that I wouldn't, I wouldn't wake up. And I just had a bad feeling. And I remember there was this one doctor. He was so kind. He put his hand on my hand and he said, Shallow, he said, I got you. And it helped me. And I was just like, oh my gosh. I mean, I was so scared. And I think this is the point where I hadn't had surgery in quite a while. And one of my first surgeries in a long time. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm good. And then right before I started doing the countdown, like 10, nine, and I'm like, oh hell no, I can't do this. And I panicked and he was like, it's okay. It's okay. We got you. And I laid back down and yeah, but yeah, that, uh, yeah, it was horrible. But yeah, I don't laugh about the coma. I laugh about a lot of other things. And I usually give that disclaimer to audiences right before I present. I'll tell people some of the things that I say today might be hard to hear. Some of the things that I say today are going to be funny. If you're the only one laughing, that's okay too, because me and you, we probably got a dark sense of humor together. <laughs> Absolutely. So, what was the, the coma? I hope you don't mind me asking. Just sort of, could you? Were you aware of people around you? Where, but you couldn't talk to them. Were you trying to say something to them? Were you trying to give them a message? What? When you say, like, can you go into more detail, like why it was so scary? Like, like what? What? If you could sort of, obviously it's very hard because you're in a coma, but what was the feeling like? Were you screaming at people, let me out, wake me up? Or was it you're in pain or you're just so uncomfortable or what was it? I was aware of people coming in and out or at least being around. Me. I, I remember, you know, my, my wife at the time, she had, uh, she was there and there were, it felt like we were having conversations, although I don't, I don't know a timeline, of course. I didn't know I was in a coma, of course. You know, so it was almost like this alternate reality where I had conversations with people and it was probably me having a conversation with myself or even maybe after the coma and I was still like really dazed and, and heavily medicated. Uh, but there were times that people were there and I knew that I couldn't talk to them, but I was trying to. I was trying to communicate with them. And it was the most helpless feeling because I'd be trying to tell people I'm hurting, please help me, please help me. But they wouldn't do anything. They just kept going about their job like I wasn't there. And I kept thinking, well, maybe I'm dead. Maybe I'm in hell. Maybe, maybe this, what is this? And then, you know, uh, I remember one time I, I was in an ambulance. I know I was in an ambulance, but in my imagination, in my dope dream, it was like a cartoon style, like the Ghostbusters kind of ambulance. And, you know, and it was like all these lights were 
like shooting by us like a Star Wars scene, you know, like we're hitting maximum warp speed or something. And I could hear everybody's intensity and it was just, it was really animated and cartoony. But yeah, it was, it was just not good, man. Uh, yeah, not good. But uh, the one of the coolest things that uh, they did tell me is they said one of the calmest moments that I had is they asked me, uh, they, they'd asked my wife uh, what my favorite band was. <laughs> and she said, well, I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but his favorite band is Metallica. And as I was growing up, I was a rocker, you know. And anyway, they actually used to play heavy metal for me to get me to calm down when my heart rates were up, which was probably like one of the times that I was having a really bad dream. And so they'd play heavy metal music for me to calm me down. Isn't that wild? That's that's crazy. That's so what's the so you go through that coma. Um one of the things that struck me in the video I watched about you was you're speaking about one of the hardest things you had to do was take the first 10 steps after your rehab. And, you know, we, one of the things that I, when you hear stories like yours is how little, little things that we do, we take so much for granted. Like if I was to go to the, if I was to leave my office now and go to this kitchen and get, you know, just to get a bottle of water, cause I'm thirsty, you wouldn't think of, you know, well, the fact that I'm able to walk there is, you know, it's, and I don't think about it as a blessing. You talk about, you know, your first 10 steps in rehab were really, really hard and how you take a step-by-step process. Can you talk us through the, the rehab of when you get out of the coma? Jonathan, first of all, I have to ask Shiloh if this comes before or after that conversation you had with your dad. You know what I'm talking about because that was a turning point for you. Is this before or after those steps? Uh, it'll, it'll, it'll be coming here in just a moment. Okay, okay. Uh, you're right it is a very strong point and it is along our theme today you know with hope and so john going back to what you said uh you know my first reaction to what you just said is i i I don't like the the word failure but uh you know this this 10 steps this was the day that i knew what i was faced with uh they came into my room and i had you know a couple of physical therapists there and my pa and uh, I can't even remember who all, but it, today was the day I was getting out of bed. And they they said, the goal today is, Sergeant Harris, we want you to take 10 steps. And I failed miserably on a couple of levels. And the reason Tina brought this up is because it is a very strong turning point for me. And it's something that I know that I have to share with just about every audience is because it was such a failure, but it was only because I failed myself. Physically, yes. You know, it it was unfortunate. I was only able to take three little tiny steps because I was exhausted and wiped out. I'd been in the coma for almost two months. And at this point, this might have even been, you know, a little bit after that. I don't remember like a starting point other than this moment. It was that cornerstone of my recovery for me to know what I was faced with. And I failed myself in the fact that when I laid back down completely exhausted, I mentally crippled myself by saying, I can't do this. I won't do this. And that is when real failure sets in, when you cripple yourself. You know, if you give up, yep, you're immediately a failure. But if you keep trying, that means that you're, you're a fighter. That means that you're a warrior, that you're willing to keep going. And this mental, mental state that I was in, it was nope, nope, nope. It didn't matter who walked in that door. I was like, they can't make me do it. I'm not going to do it. 
I'm okay with just laying here for the rest of my life because the pain was excruciating. It was beyond anything I'd ever, ever even could imagine pain being. And then, uh, then about two or three days went by like this, you know, where I was having this pity party, this failure moment. And I had a couple of people coming in and out. We'd talk about different things. And uh, some of it was faith-based. But then I remember my mom, I think my mom and dad might have had a plan. I don't know. Uh, my mom, she came in that morning and she was telling me that I really needed to start doing the work and blah, 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 and this and that. And she was like, you need to start being out there, you know, get back out there and, and uh, do this hard work, you know, because I know it's hard, but, you know, we need you. We need you to do this. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, then a little bit later, my dad comes in and he just stands at the foot of my bed. And my dad, he's a, you know, kind of stocky, blonde hair, blue eyes. And he's just standing there with his arms crossed, staring at me at the foot of my bed. Well, this went on for, you know, 15 seconds or so. And I'm waiting. And then finally, I'm like, okay, what is it? Well, he keeps standing there just looking at me. And it's like he's just trying to see my soul. And he might have been. I don't know. He might have been seeing if I was really there. And then all of a sudden he says, are you done, soldier? I was like, excuse me, sir? Are you done, soldier? And I had these just goosebumps and chills wave over me from head to toe. I thought about it for a few seconds. And I was like, no, sir, I am not. And he said, then start doing the work that you have to do and get your ass back out here. We need you. Your kids need you. Your family needs you. And he turned around and walked out of the room and left me with my thoughts. And that was, that was a turning point. That was the turning point, so to speak. And I did. I started doing the work. I started putting in the effort. When I was laying there in bed, you know, after the physical therapist would leave, I would keep working as much as I physically could. And I pushed my limits every day. And it's something that I, I shared in the book, you know, my book still will. And I know it may sound silly, but I see, just like I said earlier, everything is a weapon. Well, I also see everything as an opportunity for growth, you know, grocery shopping. I mean, me, I don't just try to get like one or two bags. I try to get them all in one load, no matter where you, where I've been, you know? So I'm like, I'm curling my, my grocery bags. You know, every time I go to do laundry, I'm curling the, the laundry, laundry soap, you know, I'm, I'm uh, getting a glass of water and I'm trying to figure out how to make it strenuous so I can push my muscles. And I mean, it's just, it may sound silly, but it's, it's like, I see a lot of these things as opportunity. If I'm just standing there, doing something in the shop, then I'll do a couple of squats, you know, to strengthen my legs. And that is literally how I got through my recovery by putting one foot in front of the other, pushing my limits. And of course, following what the doctors told me to do. But I mean, is here's where the real work falls. It's not on the doctors. It's not on the nurses. It's not on anybody that walks into your hospital room. The work falls on you. If you're faced with challenges, the only person that can truly fix your situation is you. And once I realized that, it changed my life. Shut up. 
Shiloh, could you let the listeners know the extent of your injuries? Uh, yes, ma'am. And again, you know, this isn't something I like to, to talk about a lot of times because, you know, I, I mean, I wear my injuries every day a lot of times, you know, what you see. Uh, and But that's unfortunate for some veterans because you can't see their scars. You know, me being a burn survivor, I have uh, scars on a lot of my upper torso, my head. You know, uh, I have like a small patch of hair like right on the top of my hair. I keep it shaved down just because it looks weird, you know. Some people would be like, you should grow that out. And I'm like, and then I'd look like a rooster, you know, which is actually, I think, one of my nicknames in some groups, you know. Uh, but uh, I have this small patch of hair on my head that wouldn't even really work out to be a full mohawk. But uh, one thing that I, I can say is I'm so thankful and grateful for what I do have. You know, I, I think that I, I do it well. Uh, I, I'm physical enough that I get by. You know, everybody has bad days. Even able-bodied people have bad days, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally. I mean, you name it, for whatever reason. Ended up having a chip vertebrae. My back got broken. I had three bulging discs in my back. Uh, I have three amputated fingers. No more pinky promises. I'm missing both my pinkies. And then um, one of my index finger, or the index finger on my left hand. Uh, you know, a couple of deformed fingers, you know, because of the burns. No ears. Well, I shouldn't say that. Now I have multiple sets of ears. I even have Spock ears. Uh, I was thinking about getting other thing ears if I could. I wanted to get like the red pulpy ears, you know, that those could be my alcohol ears. Like when I'm out drinking and people are like, damn, that dude drinks a lot. Look at his ears, you know. I uh, thought about having like green ears for St. Patty's Day, you know, stuff like that. But <laughs> uh, I had to have my nose reconstructed because it was like looking straight into my nose. I didn't have a nose before. That was probably one of the hardest surgeries that I had to have was on my face. You know, them doing that reconstruction. Uh, I don't know. It's just, I think for the most part, though, I do pretty good. You know, I had burn inhalation on my lungs, but I still run. Uh, I do what I can physically. Emotionally, some days, you know, I know I'm a little erratic. And yes, I do have PTSD some days, uh, worse than others, you know, uh, I think I do well with that, which goes back into what uh, we were talking about earlier when John asked about my family. You know, with my dad's PTSD, I think that I learned a lot from him, watching him. I learned what not to do, so to speak. You know, I tried not to let, I tried not to let PTSD uh, overflow into my family because it was very volatile the way I grew up, which was part of me joking around with that one segment where we were talking about the intro to my book when I was like, I've been shot at, I've been stabbed, I've been thrown from moving cars, you know, I've been in bar fights. And all of that stuff happened before I ever even joined the military because, you know, my dad had PTSD and he got put into situations that I never want my children to have to experience. And although it made me tough, there were so many times that it could have gone the other way for me. And uh, I just, I count my blessings behind that. And so I, I take account, I take responsibility for myself. I take responsibility for my own action. And that is where my real hope lies is I, I'm hopeful that I'm going to be a good father. I'm hopeful that I'm leaving a good legacy for my family. That's how I want to be remembered. I don't want to be remembered as the, you know, the guy that got crippled and got uh, blown up and then gave up. That's not who I am. And I don't think anybody wants to be remembered that way. So my question to your audience, 
is what legacy is it that you're going to leave? What hope are you going to leave your family? Because nowadays we have to have hope. We, it's going to take all of us. Our community, our society, our world is faced with so many challenges right now. It takes each and every one of us to keep spreading that hope and that love. And I'm hoping that this holiday season for all of us is that true blessing that we need to find hope in our hearts again. There's many numbers shared in society today. Um, you know, obviously, I think from the military point of view, I think the number has gone down slightly, but there, there's 22 people who serve the military um, sadly kill themselves. I think that number is down to about 20 now, but it's any even one a day is way too many. Um, why do you think that is? And, and I'd love for you if you could talk about because one of the things I think we do a bad job of as a society, and this is a worldwide problem, is when people serve the country, that it's we, we're not understanding enough or we don't ever take the time to listen to what's needed for the service members to reintegrate into society. You know, I think it's impossible for someone to see, forget even your experience, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way, but, you know, when you go overseas and you see just the poverty that you saw, you know, the, the, the lifestyle, the, the, the way of the sewerage, the way of getting water. I don't think you could see that and come back to America and just be, everything's fine, just live a normal life. And what do we need to do to better help the military to reintegrate in society? And, and what can we do to help people realize military members that, you know, that there is hope um, and that they don't, kill, you know, sadly commit suicide? And that is actually why I became a motivational speaker. And, uh, and honestly, I did it indirectly. You know, I accidentally walked into a room one day and, and essentially I was on stage. It wasn't like a, an auditorium or anything, but it was uh, one of the break rooms that they had. They were hosting incoming nurses and cadre and chaplains and stuff to the hospital. And I was looking for my doctor's office and I poked my head in and there I was basically in front of everybody. And the person that was speaking to the audience had her back and she turned and looked at me and she goes, Oh, you must be our guest speaker. And I was, and me being witty at the time, I was like, Oh no, but I can be, you know, kind of joking around. And anyway, she was like, well, seriously, come on in. And I was, I, and then I was like, no, 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 I'm actually just looking for my doctor's office. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I don't think this is it. And uh, she was like, well, do you mind if we ask you some questions? Because our speaker didn't show up. And so I'd never done it. They asked me some questions. We did some Q&A, basically, and it went well. I just told them my story. And they was like, well, what can we do? How can we do this? How can we do that? And the message with them, which were medical professionals and chaplains, is the same that I'm going to give to just about everybody, at least, you know, in this short clip, is treat them with respect. Treat people with respect, you know, especially the veterans, you know, because we don't know what they experienced. You know, I mean, there's some guys that I've met that seem a little uh, high energy or a little rambunctious and come to find out, you know, he's hypervigilant because he lost his entire crew. You know, I lost three friends. A lot of people probably wouldn't know that, you know, because I don't walk around with this dark cloud over me, you know, but when somebody's having an emotional day, I mean, try not to compound it by making it worse. Treat them with respect. Say, thank you for your service. And something that I'd like to talk to the, tell the business owners is offer jobs. You know, not every service member is PTSD crazy. You know, 
a lot of these service members just want to come back, live their life, integrate back into their hometowns or integrate into their community. Uh, the great majority of our veteran population wants to do it. When they don't go walking, we have incidents that, you know, veterans losing their cool and walking around with a gun, you know, feeling like America doesn't love them or whatever it is that, that they're going through. You know, but I, can, I honestly believe that if you say thank you to a veteran for their service, whether they appreciate it in that moment, because I, I know when people say thank you to me, it's bittersweet for the simple fact that, you know, I lost friends and I consider those that didn't make it home our greatest heroes. And I, I don't feel like I often deserve the thank you and the gratitude, but I know that somebody else may need to hear it. So I don't discourage anybody from saying it to me or to any service member. And I actually highly encourage it nowadays because some veterans need to know that they're appreciated. How do we get to a point where we do appreciate the military again? I, I see. I don't want to. Pro, I don't want to do parallels, but I, I, I see us entering a period where it's cool to rip on the U.S. military again. And I don't want to make the comparison to Vietnam because it's a different scenario and stuff and different wars. But even like to people I'd say who will say things about the military and, you know, about Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm like, you can dislike the the conflict. You can even think that you shouldn't have been there in the first place, but you should always respect the military who serve there because, you know, you can have the political conversation, but like I've, from speaking to the people who I've spoken to, even in Afghanistan um, with the, with the whole horrific pullout last year, the amount of people who did little things like, you know, the amount of kids who got to play soccer, who would never have gotten to play soccer, the amount of people who got an education that otherwise wouldn't have, you know, there's a lot of improvement. It's not just a, a black and white. Well, it was good. It was bad. There's it's, it's a more nuanced conversation. How do you feel that we can get to a point where we can actually start respecting the military again? You know, honestly, I believe that we're there, man. I mean, we have so many wonderful patriots. That, I mean, it's just like Tina, and uh, uh, she introduced me to a group, uh, Wolfpack out there in um, uh, Salt Lake. Uh, I mean, it's just, they welcomed me. They uh, do a lot of veteran good. They, they had a big dinner at the Capitol. Uh, they had veteran resources there. Uh, I mean, here's the thing, John, is I, I think that the Vietnam veterans, World War II veterans, and even the Desert Storm veterans, you know, they, they really laid down some good patriotic groundwork. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there's other topics that our society are concerned with right now. But uh, when I was going through my recovery, I was overwhelmed with love and support. And I know that not every community is the, is the exact same thing. You know, they don't all have that patriotic take. But for the most part, I'm going to tell you, I have felt welcomed home. Some veterans... Uh, may feel differently for whatever their experience is. And we can't shove this down everybody's throat. Like, oh, you better think a veteran. You better think a soldier. You know, I mean, it, it has to be something that they want to do. And so for those that, that are out there that are patriotic and value the military, uh, I want to say thank you very much for that. I thank you so very much for supporting us. And I appreciate you supporting our brothers and sisters that have served in uniform. And just as you and Tina have emphasized throughout this show is, you know, we, we feel like we joined for the right reasons. 
we joined the military to serve our country, not in a, in a you know, I want to hurt people way. We are here to help people in whatever capacity that, that, that calls for. And I want that. I just want your audience. I want the listeners to keep that in mind and keep encouraging patriotism. You know, think about it in front of somebody that may not be as patriotic as you. And if they ask you why, make sure that you have a response ready. You know, this is all about planning, you know. So, yes, there can never be enough uh, support to fill in all the cracks. But here's one thing that I, I tell people that I, I think is a very strong point is we went over there, we fought, we got shot at, we got blown up, we got this, we did that, and we made it home. We have lost plenty of lives over there. We should not lose one life right here in the United States to suicide or anything else. I mean, honestly, that we made it all the way back home. That's where we want to be. So as a gentleman who served your country, who paid a pretty high price, you know, you, you spoke about your injuries earlier on, you had third degree burns all over your body. You have lost your ears, but you have the, the you know, you get the, the, the funny ears now that you want. And, you know, I, I, I want to see it. You wear uh, Patrick's Day ears. That would be, I want to see you to send me a picture of that. Um, you know, you had to have your nose reconstructed. You have damage to your body, to your torso. You've lost a couple of fingers on your hands. It'd be very easy to kind of do your pity party and say, I can't do anything. What's your life like now? What do you spend your time as, as doing? Obviously you've written a book. Can you tell us more about that? You're speaking. What, what's, what's your calling now? Well, uh, I'm leaning towards, uh, television, movie industry, now, we've been working on that the last couple of years. Now, we were actually going to short shoot, start shooting our film. We had a we have a full feature film planned, and we were going to start shooting in 2019. I had just come off a sabbatical, taking a break. Uh, you know, I I was doing nine to fifteen presentations a month, and it kept me on the road quite a bit. And I really felt like I was failing my family, my children here, and so I uh, I wanted to uh, make sure and enjoy them and be with them but uh you know that right when we were getting ready to get back to work in 2019 we had the movie planned we had a tv show planned, we had all these different things planned and everything just shut down of course and then we're like okay well maybe things will be all right and we waited it out uh well now this year well i shouldn't say this year next year we plan on shooting in August and September for the film. We feel like, you know, people are ready to get back to work. And even last year, we were thinking about shooting last year and this year, uh, but we couldn't pull it all together just yet, you know? So, yeah, movie, television, got another couple of books planned. And, yes, I'm still a motivational speaker, but I'm going to try to balance it out a little bit more <laughs> where I'm not so overwhelmed. <laughs> You've been all over lately, Shiloh. So I don't know how good of a job you're doing with that. Yeah, I've been, to, I've been a lot of places here lately. Uh, but, you know, I've been working with an organization called helping a hero quite a bit here lately. I'm a national ambassador for a couple of different veterans organizations uh, because I, I know that they're doing good things. I know the money goes well, uh, goes to the right places. Uh, but Helping a Hero has been an organization I've been working closely with right now. Uh, their their goal is to build 100 adaptive homes for service members uh, that need adaptive homes, you know, like amputees, uh, uh, like burn survivors like myself. You know, I had the burn inhalation. I need 
clean air as well as during the summer, I need my house cool. And so uh, these organizations really do a lot of good. But yeah, Helping Heroes has been on this campaign, working with Lee Greenwood, some other great patriots uh, to help raise money so we can build these homes. And we've been doing it. And it's been a great partnership. Bass Pro, Johnny Morris has been uh, with us. And what put us on this 100 Home Challenge, the 100 Homes Challenge is Johnny Morris paid for 10 homes outright, 100%. He paid for 10 homes. And then he said, for the next 100 homes, we're going to pay 25% of those homes. And so the challenge is, right now, we need America to get behind this movement to help us identify veterans, first of all, that need adaptive homes, that were injured in combat. Of course, there's a certain criteria, uh, you know, that we're, we're trying to meet. And, of course, uh, you know, we've got Johnny Morris uh, committed to 25% of the next 100 homes, as well as the 10 homes that he's paying 100% for. And then, of course, Lee Greenwood, American legend, uh, you know, he, he's, he's having hosting concerts and, and out there really beating the ground with us to help raise this money and bring awareness to it. And uh, it's, it's just a good place to be. I'm proud to do it. Where can people find more information on to, to, to don- donate or to help get involved? And that's why you're the host. See, I always forget important details like where to find it. <laughs> well, yeah, like my website, shallowharris.com. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah, helpingahero.org is the uh, organization that I'm working with closely right now. Uh, Coalition of Salute America's Heroes. That's another one. And I think it's uh, uh, saluteheroes.org. Uh, Patriot Project is another great organization. Uh, you know, these are my top three. And of course, I work with uh, Aid the Silent here in San Antonio that is a hearing loss uh, organization, uh, you know, because as I mentioned earlier, you know, we we're talking about the disabilities. I, I actually, I forgot to mention, you know, how bad my hearing is. I, I'm, uh, I'm fortunate to have what I have, but uh, my, uh, my hearing affects me all day. You know, me being burned, you know, I've come to terms with my scars you know, unfortunately, during the summer, I have a hard time, you know, regulating my body temperature. But I want to say that, you know, my hearing loss has been probably one of the most significant disabilities that I've had to overcome and work within my limitations and work with devices. And so me being a part of Aid the Silent is an organization that helps uh, promote hearing devices for children. And then, of course, I've been also delivering food down to the border uh, with uh, one of my organizations uh, called Skycross. Uh, we're doing great things there, you know, a lot of humanitarian needs along the border. So we fly a mission down there once a month where we uh, deliver food to uh, organizations that are feeding uh, people that are, that are struggling down there along the border, uh, clothing and that sort of thing. So we usually take about two or three tons of food down there uh, once a month. Uh, yeah, I, I stay busy. There's a lot of great organizations. And it's like I said, we can't really have enough. So if if people are listening to this and they want to get involved and learn how to help, it's really, it's not that hard. All you got to do is just look up some of these great organizations, maybe find something that you're interested in. If you're interested in helping build a home, that's great. Holistic Health, uh, Coalition, you know, they do a wide range of things. I mean, Sky Cross, we're delivering food. Uh, Aid the Silent, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, helping with uh, hearing devices for children and teaching them how to sign. I mean, there's a lot of great things that you can get involved in. And that's how we make the world a better place is each and every one of us just contributing a little bit. Just like you said, John, it only takes a little bit of effort to have a great outcome. And that's what we're doing each and every day. 
Here and Shiloh, where can they go to find your website, to find out more about you and also to purchase your book? Okay. That is a great question because I only have a few copies left, honestly. And so we were, we're down to a few boxes. We had an organization buy uh, several boxes of books, but it's not in public uh, publication right now. We're working on getting another publisher for our next couple of books. And uh, he's thinking about uh, trying to uh, get Steel Will and redo it. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of good things happening right now. But they can go to my website and it'll take them to there. But unfortunately, right now, we just discovered this the other day is this the, the it's not a secure link. And I don't know what we did wrong, but uh, a lot of people don't want to go on there if it's not secure and put their credit card information in there. So people can contact me through the website if they would like. And, uh, and, or they can find me on social for that matter, you know, Shalloway Harris on uh, Facebook. And uh, I think I'm on Instagram too, Shiloh Harris. And Shiloh is S H I L O, no H on the end. A lot of people put an H on the end. But uh, yeah, there, there's a lot of ways to contact me. Uh, but we're working on uh, redoing the website and making sure it's secure. I would not want to compromise anybody's security. But yeah, we're getting there. But yeah, we're almost out of books. So, so if you want an original copy of Steel Will, now's the time to do it because I can imagine after the first year, we're not going to have any copies. Awesome. And we'll link to that website. I want to finish up with just one last question, and I hope you don't mind me asking it. Everything you've been through, serving this country, your family, the the injuries, um, the rehab, the, the horrific coma, do you regret doing what you did in serving America? Oh, John, you already know the answer to that. And I know the listeners do too. I have no regrets, brother. And I'd do it again. It was a long, hard road. But you know what? I've learned that success and, and those blessings are sometimes just out of our comfort zone. Sometimes they're, they're right there. And sometimes we have to go through tough things for a great outcome. And, uh, you know, God's there to help put the pieces together. And, and I'm so fortunate that I live this life. And absolutely, I'd do it again. I love that answer. And then finally, what's your final message of hope for people who are entering the holiday period, who are understandably caught up with the, the politics of the day, the, the threat of World War III happening over in, the, in, in Europe? What's your final message of hope? Final message of hope right now, and it's real easy. Try to block all that stuff out just for a day. And focus on what's important in your life. If you have children, focus on your children. If it's your dogs that you love the most, focus on your dogs. Have a doggy day. Whatever is important in your life, block out all that negative and fill your life with as much positive things as you can for that one day and see if you don't feel better. Sometimes I have to do that. I'll turn my phone off. I won't read the news. I won't even hardly turn on the TV. I spend time with my kids, my grandkids, and we just enjoy the blessings and the God's gifts that we have around us each and every day. Try that for one day and see what happens. I love that answer. Shiloh, on behalf of Tina and myself, thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you for um, being so patient with our tech problems earlier on. America, there was one question I want to share with you, and I want you to reflect as you listen to this interview today, and it was the question Shiloh's father asked him. Are you done, soldier? I get we're in tough times, America. I get that we're in pain. I get we're going through a lot of problems. But is America done? The nation that changed the world, the nation that took a 5,000-year leap forward, the nation that has given so many people 
everything that we look around at today. Are you done, soldier? Because I know the answer. It's like Charlotte's answer. I'm not even getting started. No matter how bad you are, no matter how bad things look, tomorrow's best day are still ahead of us. And I still believe in America's best days are still ahead of us. But they are not ahead of us if we don't do anything. Tina, who have you got on your show this week? My guest this week on the We The People, Our American Story podcast is Andrea Griffin. Andrea Griffin went through horrific childhood abuse, but came out on top and is a huge advocate for mental health and also helping our veterans and military. And finally, we salute our U.S. military, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. And America, I finish up by saluting you, the American people. Never, ever forget the sentiments of Tocqueville. America is great because Americans are good. America is great because Americans are good. And next week, we have a message of joy. Please don't miss out this show. Please share this show with your family and your friends. People need to hear Shiloh's message. Go to his website, buy his book. Until next Saturday at 12 noon Eastern, have a beautiful and blessed week. Stream and subscribe to more Blaze Media content at theblaze.com slash podcasts.